Welcome to Bible in a Year with Bill. In this podcast, the goal is to make our way through the whole Bible in a year. Each day we will be reading from either an Old Testament or a New Testament book, as well as a chapter or two from a more contemplative book, such as Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or a few others. This year I've decided to read from the Message Paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. This paraphrase is an excellent, easy-to-understand writing that will help to introduce new readers to biblical stories and concepts. It also helps more advanced readers to discover Mr. Peterson's take on the scriptures. Either way, it's a fun paraphrase, and I hope you will enjoy it with me. Let's go! Well, hello there and welcome to February 19th. We're on day 50 of Bible in a Year with Bill. Today we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 26 to 28. And then we're going to finish up with uh, Proverbs chapter 13. We're going to finish that chapter verses 13 to 25. This will be our last day in the book of Acts. And then tomorrow we start on Leviticus. Oh, I hope I don't lose too many listeners with Leviticus. I notice that our numbers have dwindled since the first of the year, but I want to encourage all of you to keep listening, keep trucking on, because I'm going to be here day in, day out. Okay, so today, Acts chapter 26. Agrippa spoke directly to Paul. Go ahead, tell us about yourself. Paul took the stand and told his story. I can't think of anyone, King Agrippa, before whom I'd rather be answering all these Jewish accusations than you, knowing how well you are acquainted with Jewish ways and all our family quarrels. From the time of my youth, my life has been lived among my own people in Jerusalem, practically every Jew in town who watched me grow up, and if they are willing to stick their necks out, they'd tell you in person, knows that I lived as a strict Pharisee, the most demanding branch of our religion. It's because I believed it and took it seriously, committed myself heart and soul to what God promised my ancestors, the identical hope, mind you, that the twelve tribes tribes have lived for night and day all these centuries. It's because I have held on to this tested and tried hope that I'm being called on the carpet by the Jews. They should be the ones standing trial here, not me. For the life of me, I can't see why it's a criminal offense to believe that God raises the dead. I admit that I didn't always hold to this position. For a time, I thought it was my duty to oppose this Jesus of Nazareth with all my might. Backed with the full authority of the high priests, I threw these believers. I had no idea they were God's people. Into the Jerusalem jail, right and left, and whenever it came to a vote, I voted for their execution. I stormed through their meeting places, bullying them into cursing Jesus, a one-man terror, obsessed with obliterating these people. And then I started on the towns outside Jerusalem. One day, on my way to Damascus, armed as always with papers from the high priests authorizing my action, right in the middle of the day, a blaze of light, light outshining the sun, poured out of the sky on me and my companions. Oh, King, it was so bright. We fell flat on our faces. Then I heard a voice in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? Why do you insist on going against the grain? I said, Who are you, Master? 
the voice said. I am Jesus, the one you're hunting down like an animal. But now, up on your feet, I have a job for you. I've handpicked you to be a servant and witness to what's happened today and to what I am going to show you. I'm sending you off to open the eyes of the outsiders so they can see the difference between dark and light and choose light. See the difference between Satan and God and choose God. I'm sending you off to present my offer of sins forgiven and a place in the family, inviting them into the company of those who begin real living by believing in me. What could I do, King Agrippa? I couldn't just walk away from a vision like that. I became an obedient believer on the spot. I started preaching this life change, this radical turn to God and everything it meant in everyday life. Right there in Damascus, went on to, went on to Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside, and from there to the whole world. It's because of this whole world dimension that the Jews grabbed me in the temple that day and tried to kill me. They want to keep God for themselves, but God has stood by me just as he promised, and I'm standing here saying what I've been saying to anyone, whether king or child, who will listen, and everything I'm saying is completely in line with what the prophets and Moses said would happen. One, the Messiah must die. Two, raised from the dead, he would be the first rays of God's daylight shining on people far and near, people both godless and God-fearing. That was too much for Festus. He interrupted with a shout, Paul, you're crazy. You've read too many books, spent too much time staring off into space. Get a grip on yourself. Get back in the real world. But Paul stood his ground. With all respect, Festus, your honor, I'm not crazy. I'm both accurate and sane in what I'm saying. The king knows what I'm talking about. I'm sure that nothing of what I've said sounds crazy to him. He's known all about it for a long time. You must realize that this wasn't done behind the scenes. You believe the prophets, don't you, King Agrippa? Don't answer that. I know you believe. But Agrippa did answer. Keep this up much longer and you'll make a Christian out of me. Paul, still in chains, said, That's what I'm praying for, whether now or later, and not only you, but everyone listening today, to become like me, except, of course, for this prison jewelry. The king and the governor, along with Bernice and their advisors, got up and went into the next room to talk over what they had heard. They quickly agreed on Paul's innocence, saying, There's nothing in this man deserving prison, let alone death. Agrippa told Festus he could be set free right now if he hadn't requested the hearing before Caesar. Acts chapter 27 as soon as arrangements were complete for our sailing to Italy, Paul and a few other prisoners were placed under the supervision of a centurion named Julius, a member of an elite guard. We boarded a ship from Adramitium that was bound for Ephesus and ports west. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, went with us. The next day we put in at Sidon. Julius treated Paul most decently, let him get off the ship and enjoy the hospitality of his friends there. Out to sea again, we sailed north under the protection of the northeast shore of Cyprus because winds out of the west were against us, and then along the coast westward to the port of Myra. There the centurion found an Egyptian ship headed for Italy and transferred us on board. We ran into bad weather and found it impossible to stay on course. After much difficulty, we finally made it to the southern coast of the island of Crete and docked at Good Harbor. 
appropriate name. By this time, we had lost a lot of time. We had passed the autumn equinox, so it would be stormy weather from now on through the winter. Too dangerous for sailing. Paul warned, I see only disaster ahead for cargo and ship, to say nothing of our lives, if we put out to sea now. But it was not the best harbor for staying the winter. Phoenix, a few miles further on, was more suitable. The centurion set Paul's warning aside and let the ship captain and ship owner talk him into trying for the next harbor. When a gentle southerly breeze came up, they weighed anchor, thinking, thinking it would be smooth sailing. But they were no sooner out to sea than a gale-force wind, the infamous nor'easter, struck. They lost all control of the ship. It was a cork in the storm. We came under the lee of the small island named Clauda and managed to get a lifeboat ready and reef the sails. But rocky shoals prevented us from getting close. We only managed to avoid them by throwing out drift anchors. Next day, out on the high seas again and badly damaged now by the storm, we dumped the cargo overboard. The third day, the sailors lightened the ship further by throwing off all the tackle and provisions. It had been many days since we had seen either sun or stars. Wind and waves were battering us unmercifully, and we lost all hope of rescue. With our appetite for both food and life long gone, Paul took his place in our midst and said, Friends, you really should have listened to me back in Crete. We could have avoided all this trouble and trial. But there's no deed to dwell on that now. From now on, things are looking up. I can assure you that there'll not be a single drowning among us. Although I can't say as much for the ship. The ship itself is doomed. Last night, God's angel stood at my side, an angel of this God I serve, saying to me, Don't give up, Paul. You're going to stand before Caesar yet, and everyone sailing with you is also going to make it. So, dear friends, take heart. I believe God will do exactly what he told me. But we're going to shipwreck on some island or other. On the fourteenth night, adrift somewhere on the Adriatic Sea, at about midnight, the sailors sensed that we were approaching land. Sounding, they measured a depth of 120 feet, and shortly after that, 90 feet. Afraid that we were about to run aground, they threw out four anchors and prayed for daylight. Some of the sailors tried to jump ship. They let down the lifeboat, pretending they were going to set out more anchors from the bow. Paul saw through their guise and told the centurion and his soldiers, If these sailors don't stay with the ship, we're all going down. So the soldiers cut the lines to the lifeboat and let it drift off. With dawn about to break, Paul called everyone together and proposed breakfast. This is the 14th day we've gone without food. None of us has felt like eating, but I urge you to eat something now. You'll need strength for the rescue ahead. You're going to come out of this without even a scratch. He broke the bread, gave thanks to God, passed it around, and they all ate heartily. 276 of us all told. With the meal finished and everyone full, the ship was further lightened by dumping the grain overboard. At daybreak, no one recognized the land, but then they did notice a bay with a nice beach. They decided to try to run the ship up on the beach. They cut the anchors, loosed the tiller, raised the sail, and ran before the wind toward the beach. But we didn't make it. Still far from shore, we hit a reef, and the ship began to break up. The soldiers decided to kill the prisoner so none could escape by swimming, but the centurion, determined to save Paul, stopped them. He gave orders for anyone who could swim to dive in and go for it, and for the rest to grab a plank. Everyone made it to shore safely. Acts chapter 28 
Once everyone was accounted for and we realized we had all made it, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The natives went out of their way to be friendly to us. The day was rainy and cold and we were already soaked to the bone, but they built a huge bonfire and gathered us around it. Paul pitched in and helped. He had gathered up a bundle of sticks, but when he put it on the fire, a venomous snake, roused from its torpor by the heat, struck his hand and held on. Seeing the snake hanging from Paul's hand like that, the natives jumped to the conclusion that he was a murderer getting his just desserts. Paul shook the snake off into the fire, none the worse for wear. They kept expecting him to drop dead, but when it was obvious he wasn't going to, they jumped to the conclusion that he was a god. The head man in that part of the island was Publius. He took us to, into his home as his guests, drying us out and putting us up in fine style for the next three days. Publius's father was sick at the time, down with a high fever and dysentery. Paul went to the old man's room, and when he laid hands on him and prayed, the man was healed. Word of the healing got around fast, and soon everyone on the island who was sick came and got healed. We spent a wonderful three months on Malta. They treated us royally, took care of all our needs, and outfitted us for the rest of the journey. When an Egyptian ship that had wintered there in the harbor prepared to leave for Italy, we got on boards. We got on board. The ship had a carved Gemini for its figurehead, the Heavenly Twins. We put in at Syracuse for three days and then went up the coast to Regium. Two days later, with the wind out of the south, we sailed into the Bay of Naples. We found Christian friends there and stayed with them for a week. And then we came to Rome. Friends in Rome heard we were on the way and came out to meet us. One group got as far as Appian Court. Another group met us at the Three Taverns, a motion-packed meetings, as you can well imagine. Paul, brimming over with praise, led us in prayers of thanksgiving. When we actually entered Rome, they let Paul live in his own private quarters with a soldier who had been assigned to guard him. Three days later, Paul called the Jewish leaders together for a meeting at his house. He said, The Jews in Jerusalem arrested me on trumped-up charges, and I was taken into custody by the Romans. I assure you that I did absolutely nothing against Jewish laws or Jewish customs. After the Romans investigated the charges and found there was nothing to them, they wanted to set me free. But the Jews objected so fiercely that I was forced to appeal to Caesar. I did this not to accuse them of any wrongdoing or to get our people in trouble with Rome. We've had enough trouble through the years that way. I did it for Israel. I asked you to come and listen to me today to make it clear that I'm on Israel's side, not against her. I'm a hostage here for hope, not doom. They said, nobody wrote warnings. Nobody wrote warning us about you, and no one has shown up saying anything bad about you. But we would like to hear very much more. The only thing we know about this Christian sect is that nobody seems to have anything good to say about it. They agreed on a time. When the day arrived, they came back to his home with a number of friends. Paul talked to them all day, from morning to evening, explaining everything involved in the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them all about Jesus by pointing out what Moses and the prophets had written about him. Some of them were persuaded by what he said, but others refused to believe a word of it. When the unbelievers got cantankerous and started bickering with each other, Paul interrupted, I have just one more thing to say to you. The Holy Spirit sure knew what he was talking about when he addressed your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet. Go to this people and tell them this. 
You're going to listen with your ears, but you won't hear a word. You're going to stare with your eyes, but you won't see a thing. These people are blockheads. They stick fingers in their ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look. So they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. You've had your chance. The non-Jewish outsiders are next on the list. And believe me, they're going to receive it with open arms. Paul lived for two years in his rented house. He welcomed everyone who came to visit. He urgently presented all matters of the kingdom of God. He explained everything about Jesus Christ. His door was always open. Proverbs chapter 13 verses 13 to 25. Ignore the word and suffer. Honor God's commands and grow rich. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. So no more drinking from death-tainted wells. Sound thinking makes for gracious living, but liars walk a rough road. A common sense person lives good sense. Fools litter the country with silliness. Irresponsible talk makes a real mess of things, but a reliable reporter is a healing presence. Refuse discipline and end up homeless. Embrace correction and live an honored life. Souls who follow their hearts thrive. Fools bent on evil despise matters of soul. Become wise by walking with the wise. Hang out with fools and watch your life fall to pieces. Disaster entraps sinners. But God-loyal people get a good life. A good life gets passed on to the grandchildren. Ill-gotten wealth ends up with good people. Banks foreclose on the farms of the poor, or else the poor lose their shirts to crooked lawyers. A refusal to correct is a refusal to love. Love your children by disciplining them. An appetite for good brings much satisfaction, but the belly of the wicked always wants more. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless this reading today. The book of Acts is such an encouragement to anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul is fearless in every way. To him, there is nothing more important than sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. He rejoiced in being tortured, imprisoned, and shunned for advancing the gospel. He was truly unstoppable, and many historians agree that he was eventually beheaded in Rome as a martyr. There is no doubt that following Jesus has a price. Paul's life exemplifies the price paid to be a believer in Jesus. He was constantly being challenged and abused by people wherever he went. His life wasn't comfortable by any means. As a Pharisee, I'm sure Paul stayed in posh hotels wherever he went and ate only the best, most expensive meals. After his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was perfectly content sleeping on a prison floor and simply eating whatever the Lord provided at the time. He was always in danger, but never afraid. He counted it as pure joy to be persecuted for the name of Christ. Do you know that joy that only comes with being a servant of Jesus? Do you experience the peace that surpasses all understanding, that comes with an intimate relationship with the one who created the universe and came as a child to live as a man and die a terrible death on a cross? Do you know Jesus? 
the one who defeated death and rose to life, enabling us to be with him for eternity. If you don't know this Jesus and would like to know him, pray with me. Lord Jesus, I am lost without you. I know that I am a sinner and I can't save myself. I need you, Jesus. By faith, I receive your gift of salvation. I am ready to trust you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for coming to earth. I believe that you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins. I believe that on the third day you rose from the dead. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe your words are true. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Amen. Now, my friends, if this is the first time you have prayed this prayer, you need to go and you need to tell someone. You need to go to a Jesus-loving church, and you need to tell someone there. Feel free to drop me a line at Bill at gmail. I'd love to hear from you. I'll talk to you tomorrow.